So I thought we'd start this morning with Psalm 111. first and would like to read it out, please do so. Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with all my heart, in the company of the upright and in the assembly. Great are the works of the Lord. They are studied by all who delight in them. Splendid and majestic is his work, and his righteousness endures forever. He has made his wonders to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and compassionate. He has given food to those who fear him, and he will remember his covenant forever. He has made known to his people the power of his works in giving them the heritage of the nations. The works of his hands are truth and justice. All his precepts are sure. They are upheld forever and ever. They are performed in truth and uprightness. He has sent redemption to his people. He has ordained his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, a good understanding of all those who do his commandments. His praise endures forever. Amen. There's so much in that psalm that just pops off the page. Um, So we're uh, in a study of just at the beginning of our study of Kings, uh, first, second Kings, um, began introduction last week. We'll uh, continue introduction this morning and uh, hopefully actually get to the text. I know that I'm a slow mover, so forgive me if, if I'm too slow. Um, what is what is Kings about so far? I mean, I, I gave you a, a couple of assignments and a couple of teasers last week. The assignment was to read through First and Second Kings three to five times. <laughs> yeah, that's all. Three to five times. I think, I think I relented and said you could read through it once. <laughs> I know that some some have actually uh, taken that challenge and, and been reading through. Who besides Karen? Actually, I didn't read it. <laughs> it wasn't me. I, yeah, I know Alex. I know Alex and Daniel have been working on it. So, um, and you know, I, I ask people to do things like that because it helps you get an overall context before you start unpacking the, the content. And I realize that um, when you look at a work like Kings, and I, I, I don't divide it into first and second. Um, it's rather a larger collection. In fact, it's a, a part of a larger collection, which we call the Former Prophets, which uh, starts in Joshua, and it's actually tied to Deuteronomy. So if you look at the whole work, you should really read Deuteronomy through the end of Kings. Five times. Five times. <laughs> yes. And uh, so that's kind of how it's organized, um, but we we pull it apart and separate it out uh, when they did the... Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures. Um, they broke it into a first and second, so that's where we get that from. The Why idea of two books. Um, it was largely size. Their scrolls only go so big. Well, they were uh, at that time. They were starting to compile codices. Although we don't have a, a codex, which is this kind of a book, um, quite that early. But they do have uh, codices that are. First, second, third century, um, but it was just the, the tradition of how they how they did the interpretation. Um, but they did recognize the organization of what we call the law, which is the first five books of the Bible, um, the prophets, which includes the former prophets and the later prophets. Right, so that would be um, Joshua through Kings, and then. What we understand is the, the major and the minor prophets. Minor prophets all grouped into one, uh, one writing. And then they had, they called the writings. 
which uh, included the wisdom literature. Um, so you'd have Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. They also put Ruth in there. Um, they also uh, put Daniel, Esther, Ezra, and Nehemiah and Chronicles in the writings. So the way that we think about the organization of the Bible is a little bit different than the way that the, uh, the Jews, as they were compiling it as the Holy Scriptures, um, considered it. And, and that's why I give you these assignments, like read through the whole of Kings so that you can kind of see the big picture of what's going on. So last week I started to try and unpack a big picture for you, <clears throat> going, uh, taking approach of, um, of the patriarchs and how we got to the time of the, the kings and what was the, the problem in the time of the kings. It's always a good question to ask as you're working through scripture after you've read through it three to five times what you're going to study is um, what is what is it trying to address? What's the problem? What's the theme of, of what you're looking at? And uh, we understand that um, the Kings and Samuel is, a lot of people would think of it as history, but it's not history in the classic sense that we think of history. We think of history as a strict chronology, a recitation of facts, like when you went to, took your history classes in high school and college, um, you have a test, and that test you have to basically regurgitate all of the dates, times, peoples, and places, right? And, and that you organize it in a chronology and you, you put things together that way. They're linked uh, in time. That's not really the way that this is organized. It's organized as a, uh, a prophetic narrative. So it's a, a prophetic history, which means that it's organized uh, thematically. So it's about something. And, that, and the, the way it unpacks is according to that, that theme, that thematic uh, context. So when we work through, and we, we took the same approach when we went through Samuel a few years ago, we're going to take the same approach of Kings. So for those of you that uh, read through uh, Kings three times this last week, and for those of you that didn't, what, what do you suppose Kings is about? What was, the, what was the larger problem going on in the day? Does anybody know the context of Kings? Just showing after David, mm-hmm. the transitions of all the kings. Yep. So there's the split. The divided kingdom. There was there was uh yep. So you get into the issues that, that happened with human kings, right? Subsequent to David. So if we were to look at um I think I've got it here already up. I do. I don't know if that's readable or not. Okay, let me see if I can make it more readable. But that doesn't make it more readable. Um, let's see if... Uh, so, let's come down here. So, take a look at just the United Kingdom part. So, I'm going to give you a chart like this, um, where basically um, we list the, um, the beginning of the kings, which the beginning of the king starts in Samuel. There's a transition uh, to the human kings. We understand that it's always been God's intent from the very beginning that he would be God, that he would be king, and that we wouldn't, right? And that we don't have within ourselves um, the authority or the, um, by design, we don't have life in ourselves. By design, we don't have authority over created things. Right? So God is uh, the author of creation. He is the one who has life in himself. And he has expressed that in his creation. But even though he has expressed it in his creation, all authority that we have as human beings is a delegated authority. It's delegated from God. So he is the true king. And even though he set up to us up to be many kings, so you go all the way back to Genesis... Chapter 1, which is the, uh, the uh, we won't go through the organization of Genesis, but we'll just take a look at uh, Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. It said, God said, 
Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created them. So that means that God's intent was that humanity, his creation, um, would have a delegated authority. That authority was to exercise rule or administration over a particular part of God's kingdom, domain, in this case, the earth, and all the, the creepy crawlies and swimmers and all that kind of stuff, right, birds in the air. So that's where the idea of a human king actually starts, starts with a delegated authority. And we kind of traced through last week, um, I don't know that we went through the whole of the, the context of Genesis, but the idea of how God then deals with humanity. We know that man fell because man tried to assert himself as a true king and not a delegate king. And as a result of that, man um, inherited the curse um, which comes from not having life in yourself. If you're not the true king and you place yourself outside uh, of the kingdom of the true king, there is no life there. The result is death. Right. So death immediately ensues. As soon as you remove yourself from the kingdom of God, we know that that happened. Um, Adam and Eve then were um, started the journey of humanity and that God didn't give up. That's one of the things I really like about the, the psalm that we just read. <clears throat> you know, if we go back to, to Psalm 111, talking about God's goodness, it says that he is uh, gracious and compassionate and that um, his covenant with us, he will remember his covenant forever. So covenant is um, an interaction between two parties. In this case, on the one side of that party is God, the other side of that party is humanity. And he's going to remember that covenant, and we'll talk more about that covenant forever. Um, and that um, even whether we are obedient to that covenant or participate, choose to participate in that covenant, the covenant still remains. It says that he has ordained his covenant forever. So God is faithful always in his dealing with humanity. He is true, he is right, and we understand that from the very beginning. But he knew that there would come a time as he um, started dealing with man, all the way back to the time of Abraham, that there would be a time when um, the delegated authority of man would be corrupted just as it was from the very beginning. In other words, kingships would happen, human kings and organizations of communities and that kind of thing under a, a tribal ruler, uh, later a nation-state, kings of empires, all of that would happen, <clears throat> and that it would get totally twisted, just like um, humanity's heart got twisted in the beginning. So he talked about um, his plan of redemption with Abraham. Right? So his plan of redemption with Abraham was that he would bless all the nations. And we, we, I think last week we went through uh, Genesis chapter 12. We talked about um, what that covenant looks like, that all would be blessed in him. And that uh, he'd make his name great, he'd be a blessing. He'll bless those who bless you and he'll curse those who curse you. And all the families of the earth will be blessed. And we later look at that interaction with Abraham as it unwinds, and he talks about kings will come forth from him, from Abraham. So we understand that there are going to be two kinds of kings as we look at um, the organization in Genesis, that there's going to be uh, a delegate king that is honoring that covenant with God, and then there's going to be a self-appointed king who doesn't honor that, Right? And as God reveals himself in his law, what we, we often think of as the covenant at Mount Sinai, under the Mosaic covenant, so the first covenant was with Abraham, well, the first covenant was with Adam and then Noah, and then Abraham is one that we often refer to. Um, but we then get to a covenant that happened at Mount Sinai, where God revealed himself 
to a people that he had chosen, not because they were special. In fact, they're really pretty unspecial. And they're a bunch of whiners and complainers and schemers and just like us, right? And, and he chose this group of people not because they were special, but because he wanted to um, work through them to bring redemption to the world. So they would have a priestly role. So we understand the role of the prophet, the priest, and the king, which we talked about in Samuel. Prophet being one who speaks for God to humanity. The priest being the one, being the one who brings humanity to God. Right? That's the role of the priest. And the king then has an administrative role of um, caring for God's creation. And it's been that way since the very beginning, right? In fact, as you go through um, the law, you get to Deuteronomy chapter 17. And uh, in my NASB, it even has a title over chapter 17. It calls Administration of Justice. So we understand that as we start talking about kings as different from prophets and priests, that there is a specific role in that delegated king that has to do with administration. It has to do with um, working out the works of God as delegated in the world. Right? God always thought, that, or always uh, intended, that that would be the case. That there would be the king on the throne in heaven, and there would be his representatives among men. And you actually see that because it is not possible because of our corruption that he becomes that representative among men. The true king is the one we call the Christ. The Jesus. Jesus, the Christ, right? That he is the one, the son of God, who is the true heir of that kingdom and the one who has life in himself, the one who came to do what a king is supposed to do. Well, what is a king supposed to do? Well, we read that in Deuteronomy chapter 17. Uh, I'll start in verse 14. It says, When you enter the land which your God gives you, and you possess it and live in it, and you say, I will set a king over me like all the nations who are around me, you shall surely set a king over you, whom the Lord your God chooses, one from among your countrymen, you shall set as king over yourselves. You may not put a foreigner over yourselves who is not your countryman. Stop there. So the first thing that, that uh, is recognized when God's speaking to humanity and he's trying to help people understand who he is and what he's doing, what his purpose is in this creation, is he says, you know, I'm going to bring you as this uh, people group into a land, um, and when you live in it, you're going to look around and you're going to want to be just like fallen people in that land. Right? You're going to look around and you're going to see the, all these ites, right? the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Jebusites, all these ites, um, and you're going to want to be just like the ites. You're going to want to uh, adopt their gods, you're going to want to adopt their women, you're going to want to... Um, be just like they are. You're going to be one. You're going to want to be in the world, even though I've set you apart and you're not of the world, right? And that the, one of the things that you're going to do is you're going to ask for a king, because this whole idea of kingship got corrupted, just like everything else got corrupted. And you're going to want one who appoints himself as king, and he might do it through power. Right, having military might, or he might do it through persuasion. He's really clever, right, and he's a good speaker. And we see all of that in our world, don't we? Right? When we look around, we look at the leaders of our world. How did they become leaders? Every once in a while, you'll see one who whose head pops up above the crowd. Who the head doesn't pop up because of power and doesn't pop up because of cleverness, but actually pops up because the goodness of God gets expressed. That you see someone that is called according to a purpose, 
and that purpose is being expressed so faithfully that it becomes uh, prominent, right? That's what God intended. Not that one would self-appoint themselves as a king, but rather he would have a calling on a person's life that they would be an administrator in his kingdom and they would bring about justice. Right? What is justice? Anybody want to venture a guess? Getting what you deserve. It's justice getting what you deserve. <laughs> Judging what is right. Sometimes. The ruler is God. Mm-hmm. And it's getting what God wants you to have, I guess. Right. And what does God want for us? Justice. Righteousness, judging what is right. He wants to bless us, right? And he wants to do it through these these delegates of his that he chooses as leaders. In fact, he makes covenants with us through these leaders, right? Um, He wants to express his goodness with his creation. He is good. So, justice is the restoration to right, to goodness. So when we think of justice as it's supposed to be, it shouldn't be um, punishing somebody because they've done wrong. Rather, it should be restoring to right, which might include removing someone who refuses to embrace that. Right. So we understand different kinds of justice. Um, I can give you four really quick. One of them that we do, we would call social justice. So social justice would be where we're concerned about the, um, the society at large, right? Social justice. And that might mean that when someone does not want to play by the rules of that society, you reform them. You put them in a reform facility, which we call prisons. They were originally supposed to be reform facilities, right? Or, if they refuse to be reformed, that you keep them separate in some way. Shipped them to Australia. Shipped them to Australia. (laughs) That's right. Right? Um, But that's what that was about. In some aspect, was social justice. Concern for the the people at large. We also have uh, a concept of retributive justice, retribution. That when someone... um, does not do what is right and good as God has declared it right and good that that warrants a penalty, a punishment and so we have the idea of capital punishment and some people would take that all the way back to the the Jewish law and they'd say an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth life for a life Right? that's retributive justice now is that reforming? no, is it um, about the society's health at large, it might be in the sense of, well, we're taking them out of the way, but really, it, uh, it isn't about making society better, other than maybe the deterrent effect, right? That would be retributive justice. We have social justice, we have retributive justice. Um, we have reformative justice, or, or not restorative justice, not reformative, restorative, where the idea of restorative justice is that you... Um, repay the wrong. And you see that in the Old Testament. So when somebody would steal something, what did they have to do? Had to pay back at least twice, sometimes more. Right? So they, pardon? So, so that would be uh, restorative. So you're, the social justice and retributive justice are focusing on the perpetrator for the benefit of society or for the purpose of punishment. Right? Restorative justice is focusing on the victim. So you want to restore the one who is the recipient of that wrong, ungood behavior. Right? And we have that too. You know, when someone uh, does something, um, they go to court and they say, okay, you pay a fine to the victim's compensation fund and you go and you clean up trash. Right? Um, so you have both a social justice part and you have a uh, restorative justice part. And then the last one which um, we see is what we would call distributive justice. And that's where everybody gets their fair share. We're actually going to see all, all four of these kinds of justice in Kings. Um, the idea that everybody gets their fair share is if, uh, 
if uh, you have um, an inheritance and your plot of land, uh, and somebody else has their inheritance and their plot of land, if um, if it's unfair how that's meted out between the children and the inheritance, um, people should should have some kind of uh, right to claim property, right? And and we we get in Western world we get really uptight around property. You know that's mine. It's not yours. Not only that, but I have a right to it. It's an entitlement. And so we look at a lot of what our society does and what our culture does is around distributive justice. And you see it in lawsuits that um, are trying to get their fair share, however that occurs. And so we also understand that that can be very destructive to the social uh, organization. So we try and limit distributive justice and do social justice, right? And that's what you'll see, tension between these different kinds of justice. Well, the administration of justice is the king's job. That's what he's supposed to do. And we're going to see that in the, the, uh, the third king in the line um, when we get to Solomon. He's famous for his um, expression of administrative justice. Right? In fact, he was called wise, wise above all, because he had some kind of divine insight. But what we see is that people will want to make that their own rather than accept that as a delegated responsibility from God. So they will assert themselves as a king, and and God's saying, you know, when you get in there and you're living in the land, you're going to say, I want a king like all the nations who are around me. And God says, you shall surely set a king over you whom I choose. Right? So that's the way it was supposed to be. They were supposed to not just look at whose head raised above the crowd because of persuasive abilities, good looks, slick speaker, or um, what they get power. Pardon? What they can give you. What they can give you, right? Mm-hmm. That would be persuasive abilities. It's like, hey, yeah, I can line your pocket this way if you vote for me. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, but rather it's supposed to be one whom God chooses and the one that he chooses is going to be from among your countrymen and you shall set a king uh, you shall set as king over yourselves and you may not put a foreigner over yourselves who is not your countryman in other words it needs to be a citizen of the land um, that is just like them in other words there's nothing that you would look at and say this guy's beautiful, this guy's smart, this guy's um, rich, this guy's got you know lots of cattle and, and armies and stuff like that, but rather he's an ordinary guy. How was Jesus described? Mm-hmm. He was an ordinary guy. Who did he come from? He, he came from among his countrymen. Right? So we see that the picture that God has for the divine king among men is the picture of the Christ, of Jesus, who was to come. And we even understood that when we go back and we look at the blessings that were passed down from, uh, from Jacob to his sons, and he's saying, you're going to do this, you're going to do that. And he gets to Judah, and he, he gives an expression that through the, the tribe of Judah would come this king. Right? And so we understand that this was God's intention from the very beginning, but people would have it all wrong from the beginning. Yes? But all this is kind of inhuman. Pardon? I mean, it's, it's, it's more divine than human. Because if you finish this, this uh, part of Deuteronomy, it says... Don't want to buy yourself horses. Don't take on lots of wives. Ah. You know, don't, mm-hmm. I mean, all this yep. stuff. And it's like, well, wait a minute. If I have absolute authority, what am I going to do? I'm going to build up an army. I'm going to take lots of well, wives. You, you know, might build up an army, but what's the purpose of building up an army? Protection and protection. Uh, conquest, maybe. And control Ooh. the people. Power. Power, yeah. Control. Yeah, oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. control the people. Well, what I'm saying is, as soon as you're in absolute authority, mm-hmm. absolute power corrupts, right? Oh, so it does among humanity, exactly. because so humanity is corrupt. It's not that power corrupts, 
people are corrupt. Yeah, but that's what I'm saying about this, is this is <laughs> almost inhuman. It's saying mm-hmm. that, ah, it that begs, what it begs for a divine done, king. Yeah. That, is, that bar is it's really high. high. Yeah. yeah. And, <sighs> and then, you know, as you say, Christ actually fills it. It's kind of interesting because he doesn't have an army. He doesn't yeah. have any wives. Well, actually, he you does know, have an army. Well, but he didn't bring it. He does have a bride. <laughs> <laughs> well, the bride is what? The church? So, but I mean, it's not like he had multiple wives from all kinds of places. Well, he actually asserts his army at the point where it is important to both protect and um, restore. So when you read okay. the second but coming of Christ, what's he, but what's he about doing? And what's going on in the world at that point? Right? So he, he has an army. And in fact, he was tempted with the fact that he had an army. Yeah. yeah. The devil said, if you're, the, if you're truly the son of God, bring it on, man. And, and what did Jesus say? That's not for me to do. That, that, that there's a time and a place for that, and this isn't it. I'm paraphrasing very broadly there. But, that, I mean, that's essentially it. It's not that Christ is all of that. And the idea was, from the very beginning, we went back to Genesis before the fall, that was the intent that God would dwell among men, that we would walk with him, we would talk with him, just like Adam did in the garden, and that we would have a delegated authority from him to express his goodness and his rightness, his truth in all creation. And because of the corruption of sin, we make the phrase, power corrupts. I'd make the, the, the turn that and say, no, corruption causes power to be misused. So power only comes with authority. So, and, and people might uh, assert, but they, you know, true power comes with true authority. And so what you see here is a delegation of that authority. And, and he says, you're right. You I mean, don't be like the peoples around you. Uh, you, sh- you shall not multiply forces. Nor should you cause people to return to Egypt to, to multiply horses. So don't make these alliances. Right? Um, since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way. I pulled you out. I am, I am delivering you from the world's bondage. You know, if we look at it um, figuratively. That's part of why when he said go into the land, get rid of her. Right, and so when we need to look at, okay, so we're going to have these delegate kings that come along, and Joshua is, and Moses, uh, Moses being both prophet and priest, and Joshua is Manuensis taking that role because the human king has an administration and a form that we recognize had not been firmly established, even though God had talked about it before, and there were kings in the surrounding communities. Among the people, they were following one who was called by God to do that which a king does. And when you look at how these people lived their lives, they lived their lives, they didn't multiply horses, they believed God, they weren't going back to where he delivered them from. Um, You know, even in the desert, who who were the two that came back and said, you know, no, God said take it. Caleb and Joshua, right? And what was the what was the um, complaint? I'm tired of manna. Let me go back. So much better. So much better. What did you just come out of? You know, what, how did God deliver you? And he says, "You shall not multiply wives for yourself." Why would somebody multiply wives for themselves? For children. It's not part of our not part of our normal culture. It's for children. Not part of our normal culture. Uh, in fact, I think there are laws against it. Um, but in some cultures it is. You have multiple wives. And the reason why is children. Because you increase your inheritance through your children. You increase your land, your possessions, through your children. You get to live to a ripe old age, having your grapes peeled for you, through children. Right? So... Don't multiply wives for yourself, or else his heart will turn away. Turn away from what? 
Pardon? From God. That we're supposed to trust God. He is our inheritance. Right? Nor shall he greatly increase silver and gold for himself. Where does provision come from? Even today, our provision comes from God. We like to think, you know, we have a uh, vastly different economy than they had in that day, and how um, how people met their needs. Um, but we, our provision, without God actually sustaining us right now, you can't even take a breath. That's how close God is to you. He's closer to you than your own breath. In His provision for you, His upholding you, everything comes from Him. Your whole life comes from him. You have nothing apart from him. So don't depend on what you can accumulate or how much land you can grab or the treaties that you can make or the armies that you can build. Right? Now it shall come about when he, the king, sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a copy of this law on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests. So the first thing, number one, first thing that he's supposed to do is copy it for himself. He's not to go like check out somebody else's copy and read it. He's supposed to write it himself. Why do you suppose that is? He needs to know it. That's right. When you're going to school, you do all sorts of exercises, right? And those exercises are building skills in your mind. Those exercises include reading, writing, arithmetic, right? That's what it used to be. I don't know what it is today. But it used to be exercises intended that the the content of what it is that is before you becomes inside. That's what the first thing he's supposed to do is he's to, to bring that insight, to make a copy of this law in the presence of the Levitical priests. So that means that there is one who has a responsibility to bring him in communion with God. And that person has been given strict um, guidance about how you approach God, what God requires. And so as you're making a copy, if you... If you express any part of your own, like, well, I really want it to say this. And people do that all the time. They want the Bible to say something different than it does. So it's like, well, let's rewrite it. Let's call it the gay gospel. Right? And there is one of those, by the way. Um, because they don't like what it says. Because it doesn't say what they want. So the Levitical priest says, no, 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 no. This isn't about you. As you're copying it, this is about God. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life. That's the second responsibility. First, he's supposed to make it his, and then he's supposed to live it. He's supposed to do it. When you look at Ezra, who was a scribe, in Ezra 7.10, so if I go to Ezra 7.10 here, Ezra 7.10 says this about Ezra. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to practice it, and then to teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel. Right? So that's the order. It starts here by making it yours, making it in your heart. Then it, it you have to live it. You have to practice it. Then you might be qualified to do the job that his heart may not be lifted up above his countrymen and that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right or to the left so that he and his sons may continue long in his kingdom in the midst of Israel the purpose of bringing it in and living it is so that as an administrator you can bring the people to that place Right? You're protecting them as God protects us. You're um, providing for them as God provides for us. You're serving them as God serves us. 
right? That's why I always end in prayer here, and I'm thankful for God's protection, provision, and service. That's what our King has done for us. He's protected us from, from the beginning of time for the purpose of communion with Him. So the commandment that the King, when He enters into the kingship, basically writes the law and it's witnessed by the priest, put that in the context of Christ coming into His kingship in terms of basically restating or summarizing that. How would you draw that parallel? Um, Jesus was a student under the Levitical priests. In fact, we have a story in his childhood before he uh, reached adulthood and had his bar mitzvah, right? He was found absent from his family. Where did they find him? Studying at the feet of the Levitical priests, the teachers, the scribes. And um, Jesus, so we live in a literate culture. And the Jews very early had a literate culture because it was important for them to do this very thing, to write it down. Because the first part, that, that exercise, brings it in. Right? In fact, they took it to the extreme where they would actually put it on their, their forehead. They put it on their forearm. Right? As a reminder. Remember, remember, remember. So that you can live it, live it, live it. Well, they kind of forgot the second part, but they, they do the first part pretty, pretty religiously. Jesus did that, so he was a literate um, carpenter. Surprised people. It's like, where does this guy get all this wisdom? Because he lived in an oral culture. An oral culture, um, and, and we see that in his teaching. He's teaching to an oral culture. He's using stories to express truth. Right, um, he did that because he had actually done this. He applied it first in his life, and then he walked it. And we know that, and he walked it perfectly, because no one could find fault. No one could find uh, that he had any sin in his life. And yet, he was like us in every way. Hebrews says he was like us in every way, yet without sin. That's what the king is supposed to do. Now, we understand that's a high bar. It's a high bar if you're corrupted. It's not a high bar if you're operating according to God's design. It's rather, it's just living out that, that calling that he's put on your life, that ordination. And what would happen is, if you look at the original um, intent of God, as expressed in Genesis 1.26... We're all to be kings, right? It isn't that we would have one of our countrymen above us. Rather, we're all have, we all have a calling to do God's good. That's, that's who we're supposed to be. And understanding that people, um, as soon as you put them together, mischief happens because of corruption. Um, my mom knew that. <laughs> Because as soon as I get together with certain people, bad news. And it wasn't those people. I corrupted them. Their mothers wouldn't let them play with me. <laughs> because that's what happens, right? You put people together, and um, all of a sudden, the things, people forget God and only think of themselves. And what the king is supposed to do is help them not do that. He's supposed to, like the priest, bring people into the presence of God for communion. He's supposed to do that as an administrator in the kingdom. So you can see there's this perfect triad, trinity, of prophet, priest, and king. One who speaks from God to humanity, one who brings the people before God, and one who administers over that whole kingdom. It's all about justice and truth. And there's nothing about the American way in there. So that's what the king is supposed to do. So when we look at the former prophets and we read about Joshua being faithful, he was faithful to God's. God was faithful to his people. God has always been faithful to his people. Joshua happened to be one that believed God against all odds. 
and that's why he was remarkable. He was a great military commander because he believed God. And when he faltered, we find out, ooh, things didn't go well. So you get some of the boogers in his beard too, right? He's not perfect. But at the end of his life, what does he do? He throws down a challenge. He says, as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. But you, now you choose. What are you going to do? And so what did they do? They said, we want to be like the people around us. We want to become Canaanites. We don't want to be Israelites. We don't want to be a descendant of Jacob. He's called Israel. We want to be like these guys. They have kings and gods and cool things, right? It took a while. It, it didn't happen overnight. But you know what? Corruption can completely change the course of history in one generation. Righteousness can change the course of history in one generation. That's why it's important what we do. We can't, we can't say, um, like some would say in this election, <clears throat> my vote does not matter. Because we actually, through the way that we live our lives, are changing the course of history. And I gave you the challenge last week. The challenge last week <clears throat> was I asked you this question. Is the king's heart a reflection of the people's heart? Or is the people's heart a reflection of the king's? The people's heart is a reflection. Mm. Pardon? I think it's a, the people's heart is a reflection of the king because of headship and whatever is in the headship comes down. So if that's the or, case, then we want to make sure that God's person is in that place. That's right. Because then right. I can also say that we all want the king that reflects our, you know, yeah. character, which could not be. So if we're going to be going through the, the course of the kings and the measure of that king is not about what he did or accomplished. Some kings had great prosperity. Manasseh. Served a long time, 55 years. And in his time, there was peace and prosperity. But he's not judged to be a good king. Because he's measured against God's purpose and plan for humanity. He's measured against this in Deuteronomy. So when we get to our our uh, judgment here, when we look at the kings, is he good or is he bad? Is he a good king? Is he a bad king? And this is in the sight of the Lord, right? Mm -hmm. This is this is according to what a king is supposed to do, mm -hmm. according to God's decree, according to God's revelation. That this is the measure. I mean, this is the Lord speaking here. This is first person. So, that's what's supposed to happen. So, go ahead and scroll down through this. Oh, you, you can't you. do that. Yeah. <laughs> you can ahead. But I'm just saying, I'm just saying that <laughs> the, the judgment is not about what the person does and accomplishes. And I would say that after that king, and I'll, I'll just give you the preview, Manasseh was not a good king, right? He's not judged to be good. And in fact, some would blame the captivity that comes, the Babylonian conquest and destruction of Jerusalem, the equivalent of a nuclear event of their day, um, on Manasseh's um, idolatry and corruption. But you read through, it says, the people's heart was thus. Mm -hmm. Because right after him, a grandson, Josiah, was one of the best. And reformed. And discovered this. And did it. And yet, the people's heart was one that they rejected good king. And instead, embraced the evil. So, that's part of the revelation that we're going to see as we move through Kings, which is really scary, because it's a lot like our world today, right? Do we have 
I'm going to use some names here. Please don't shoot me. Um, <laughs> do we have Hillary Clinton, Bernie Sanders, Donald Trump, and Ted Cruz as our candidates because they look like they fit this mold of a good king? <laughs> I, would, I would suggest that in each one of those candidates, you'll see some aspect of the world that the world wants, and that's why they're getting traction. That's scary. That means that if I'm going to change my world in my generation, and I'm doing that through my kids, right? Um, I, I need to look at things completely different. That, that's really hard. So when we move through Kings, we're going to see some stuff that's not just about what these guys did, as far as you know whether they rushed off into battle and took an arrow, or whether they conquered through singing hymns, right? It's, it's about what their heart is in this. This is the judgment that is applied to each one of those kings. Just an observation. We're referring to the kings right now, like the four people that are about to be elected for the people, but there are actually some hidden kings above those kings that yes. we have no access to those kings. <laughs> yes. And these are just puppet kings. And and we do see that. And we'll see that in kings, too. There will be puppet kings for other larger empire concerns. That says something, too. So it can feel very defeating when you say, as hard as I try to do good, the world fails. As hard as I try to do good, the world fails. Jesus said, take heart. Right? He's overcome the world. That's why I started with God's goodness in Psalm 111. Is it possible that the goodness of God is present in the world today? And if so, where does it reside? Because you're correct. There are kings and kingdoms and empires, some of which we see, some of which we don't. What you don't see is really scary. We could easily lose heart. Let's not do that. So let's let's take a look um, before we jump in here, because we're at the time where I'm out of time. Um, let's take a look at the first and second king before we get into the book of Kings. We went through Samuel, and we um, looked at the institution of the first king, and. List here, he started good, he ended evil. Um, so the first king of Israel uh, at that time was Saul. It was the United Kingdom. There was one people group. Saul was of the tribe of Benjamin. And so for those of us who went to Israel, we saw the strategic importance of Benjamin. Why Benjamin is the crossroads. Um, if you're going to affect the world in that day, you do it through the crossroads. And Saul was called because there was a threat to the crossroads. He needed to, to um, stand up armies to defend the people, not for conquest. And he needed to specifically take out some people that historically had caused problems and corrupted um, the Hebrew nation. So the Malachites. He was called to, to take them out. When was Saul's turn? When did he go from good king to bad king? He started relying on himself. Pardon? He started relying on himself. He started relying on himself. And he, and he thought, you know, I can, I can contain this evil. I can have some of it, the good part of the evil. Good evil. Right? Um, I can have the goodness that God said, no, 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 leave that alone. And I can depend on myself. I don't need the, the prophet and the priest in order to um, get our armies aligned in the right, right direction. 
That you're right. That's when he when he started depending on himself and not depending on God, which was significantly different than what happened in Joshua. So we see a, a transition that is that has become um, so commonplace that people don't even know it. We read at the end of uh, the judges, the time of the judges, that every man did what was right in his own eyes because there was no king. It's not because there was no king, it's because the good king was not there to help the people in the way that the king had been called as an administrator. And that became so uh, commonplace that when they did finally select a king, and how did the people select their king? They looked at who was persuasive, handsome, <laughs> stood a foot above all of his peers, right? Not only that, but he's a Benjamite. Well, we read about Abigail's Benjamites. Um, so that was Saul he depended on himself so what did God do he anointed a different king one that one that was chosen by him and not the people and it was one that was after his own heart it's kind of weird that he anointed David so early Mm-hmm. Yes. So I would say that our calling comes very early. It's really scary again. It's like, how faithful are we to our calling? Um, and the, the expression, a man after God's heart, does that mean that that man reflects God? Or does that, that mean that that man chooses to pursue God regardless of his own personal failures? So we think, how could David possibly be a man after God's heart? That's a reflection of God. David's a murderer, an adulterer. You know, he he uh, he does things for his convenience, right? But when you read the Psalms, read Psalm ninety-six. I think it's ninety-six, maybe ninety-two. Give you a Psalm of David, and this is where we'll close <clears throat> because. We're going to look at the successor. Ninety-six. Uh, no, it's not ninety-six. Sorry. Don't go to ninety-six. Uh, yeah, I mean there are a variety of psalms that are attributed to David, and, and you read them, and it's like, whoa. Amazing. Um, but this is where we're going to close. David, regardless of. Of his personal failures, owned them and repented and turned to God. So he was a man chasing after God's heart, even though he didn't reflect it in his personal life. And so, what what do we say about David? Good, good. And that doesn't mean that everything, that's why I say it's not about when you measure good, good, and I say murderer, adulterer, did things for his own um, wealth, accumulated wives, and gold, and horses, and all sorts of stuff, right? But how is he judged according to what he did? He did not lift his heart up above his countrymen, but rather placed himself under the authority of God and his life he submitted so let's let's go ahead and close here we'll actually start in 1st Kings chapter 1 next week um, and we'll look at David's successor who is Solomon and we're going to see this this trail but again we want to understand this this is organized thematically it's trying to tell us something it's not just a recitation of a chronology of that in fact, it doesn't follow strict knowledge. Lord, we thank you for this time together that we can uh, come into your presence, that we can study your word. Lord, it's so rich, and yet in many ways it's very challenging for us because it's broad and that you know, if we were to, to look and read through critically, um, we'd be reading through uh, from Joshua through Kings um, multiple times, and we would do that in a week and and then start our serious study. And Lord, that's in many ways uh, too great a task for us, and that we are 
challenged by all the different things that pull us away, the world pulls us away, um, and jobs and time and responsibilities and things that we need to do. And, and yet, Lord, we have this, this opportunity, and we ask that in these opportunities that we have to come to your word and to study, that you would uh, richly bless that, that you would multiply it to us in helping us to hear what it is that you're telling us in your word, and that you would help us to apply that in our lives, that we would be able to live that out. And Lord, ultimately, that we would be able to uh, live in this kingdom as ambassadors for your kingdom, and actually make a difference in our lives because of you, not because of us. Lord, we thank you for this. We thank you for your um, protection of us, in this crazy world, we thank you for your provision. We thank you for your incredible service to us on the cross, that you died and rose to conquer death. We thank you for all this, Lord Jesus, and we pray in your name. Amen. Amen.